Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, this morning I'll be doing a reading from Genesis uh, 2, 4 to 15. Adam and Eve. This is the account of the heavens and the earth and when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of, of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of the land is good, aromatic resin and onyx were also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. hyper-intelligent, pan-dimensional beings got so fed up with the constant bickering about the meaning of life that they commissioned two of their brightest and best to design and build a stupendous supercomputer to calculate the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Oh, Deepthoughts, we want you to tell us the answer. The answer to what? The answer to life. The universe, everything. We'd really like an answer. Something simple. Hmm, we have to think about that. Return to this place in exactly seven and a half million years. Have you finished? Oh, no, there's more. There's more. They go back, what, seven and a half million years later? That's right. They do. answer for you? Yes, but you're not going to like it. It doesn't matter. We must know. All right. The answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything is... Forty-two. What is the meaning of life? 
Why does life exist? Why are we here? Uh, we haven't got lots of money and a giant computer to compute the answer for us, so we'll just take the answer as 42. But maybe there's another answer. Uh, maybe there's another reason behind. Why does life exist? Uh, this is a question that has been pondered as long as questions have been pondered, as, as long as people have existed. Uh, we find different civilizations and different cultures and different places and different people asking this question. Why are we here? Why do we exist? Another way of phrasing this or another way that this sort of plays out and why of reason that some people are asking this question is this, is what do people live for? What's our purpose? What, what do we do and why do we do it? How do we know if what we're doing is what we should be doing and, and how do we know uh, that that's actually a good thing to do? Uh, one of the things that's been put together uh, it uses the word ten bonde idols. Uh, in this case, it's just Jeffrey Curtis Fors basically expressing what are the things that are at the heart of the reason for why people do what they do. What, what are sort of the ten top things that might drive a person to make the decisions that they make or to live the way that they live or, or to do the things that they do? Uh, for some people, that the reason they do what they do is it's because their identity uh, they really, really care about their identity and what that means and, and how that would sort of help them make choices. Uh, one might be money or materials, that they have a real desire uh, to get lots of wealth behind them. And so they'll make decisions about getting money. And that's ultimately the thing that drives them. Or more possessions or, or more houses or more fast cars. You know, that might be what it is. Uh, for some people, the thing that drives them is their job or the status they have within their job or within culture. And so they'll sort of make life decisions around those things. For some, it's physical appearance. That, that's not my idol. Uh, but for some people, that is what it is. And that's what they really care about. Uh, some, it's entertainment. And entertainment decisions and, and being entertained and having fun might be at the heart of why they do what they do. For some people, they are driven by sex. And that is actually the thing that drives them making choices. For some, it's comfort. Just being as comfortable as you can be and you will make choices to be comfortable. Uh, for some, it's technology. They actually are really driven by finding the next thing and to actually really build into technology. Uh, some people, family and children is actually their purpose and meaning and that's the thing that's at the heart of why they do what they do. And for some people, it's influence or fame. And I'm sure for many of us, we could look at that chart and actually see there's probably two or three that are really significant to each of us. Uh, it's not even necessary. I almost tried to get rid of the word idols here, but I wanted to truly reflect the person who came up with this list. It's because that these things in and of themselves aren't necessarily wrong. These things aren't necessarily bad. But if they become the thing, if they become the thing that drives you, that that's the most important thing, I wonder if it might be missing something. At the heart of all that we do, everyone worships something. Whether you believe in God or you don't believe in God, there is something there that, that seems to, at the end of the day, that boils down to there's a thing that is right there at the heart and it drives you and it's a passion or a purpose. For those who might have faith, and hopefully faith is in that place, but of course we have lots of temptations to be pulled in different directions. People might be exploring faith. They might have a different purpose, but they're trying to understand if or where faith might fit in or might not fit in with these things. We're continuing today in our series 
uh, called a Christian worldview. And we're willing to unpack what actually is a Christian worldview. What, what are the bare essentials? What are the basic elements that go into making up a Christian worldview? Sort of taking a, a macro level approach rather than getting down into the very micro level theologies of exact things and asking some of the big questions. Uh, we've looked at origins over the last three weeks, and we've dug into uh, the idea of the Trinity. We looked at creation. We looked at the fall. And now we move into the second portion. So for the next two weeks, this week and the week after camp, we're going to look at meaning. What does the Bible actually teach is the meaning of life? And how does that actually play out in our lives today? I know for me that as I've been looking at this over the last few years, and that's where this, this came from, it was something I did a few years ago, uh, I was doing a study or looking into something and something jumped out at me that I hadn't seen before. And it, it really reshaped the way that I view so many things around the meaning of life. And so we're going to take some time to look at this. So where we're going to start, it's always good to start at the beginning, is to actually go to the Bible and look at the very first place the Bible references some kind of purpose, some kind of reason for our existence. Why were we created? What was our purpose or job in the beginning? And then over the next two messages, this one and then in two weeks' time, actually think about what that might mean for the question of, what is the meaning of life? What is my purpose? Why am I here? What can I do with my life? And, and how does that impact my day-to-day -day life? If you have your Bibles, I'd love you to jump in with me. Phones, physical Bibles, whatever it might be, uh, or we have it up on the screen. We're going to go into Genesis chapter 2. Uh, we had Callum read it out to us before, so I'm just going to highlight a couple of verses. And the first verse that we see here is in verse 5. It says, Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. And I've highlighted the word work, because that word's what we're going to be looking at today. And I want you to jump on down to verse 15. So God's gone through the process and he's created a garden, uh, and so the creation is coming to life. And then in verse 15, we get the very first reference to our purpose. Why was man, male and female, created? And in verse 15, it says this. The Lord God took the man. At this stage, Eve hadn't been created. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So at the very beginning of time, before the fall happened, before even Eve was made, the reason given for our existence is that God created man to work. Now, in this particular context, it's to work the garden. It's to look after the garden. It's to care for his creation. But this is the very first reference to a purpose in the Bible. Now, the Hebrew word here for work is the word Avodah, or Abodah. I don't know how to pronounce Hebrew, so I do it terribly every single time. I can read it, but I can't actually say it because I don't know what it actually is. Uh, the equivalent Greek word, because we are going to look at this in the New Testament as well, because this is a theme that goes through the whole Bible. The equivalent Greek word is Latreia. 
And so these are going to be our theme words that we're going to have a look at because they absolutely capture the essence of the answer to this question. Now, what's interesting about this word, both the Hebrew version and the Greek version, is it can be translated in different ways. And they might surprise you. Uh, sometimes, in some contexts, this word is translated as worship. Sometimes, and in some contexts, this word is translated as work or labor. And sometimes, in some contexts, this word is translated as serve. And throughout the Bible, these three words are intrinsically linked. So when you see in your English translations, worship, work or labor, or, or references to serve, most of the time, not all the time, because there are other words that are translated as those, but many, I think it's something like 285 times, this is the word, and that's only in the Hebrew, that's not the New Testament, it's avodah. That worship is intrinsically linked with the idea of work, which is intrinsically linked with the idea of service. And it goes right back to the beginning that we were created to work and care for the garden. Uh, some examples, so you can sort of see how this plays out and how the context might shape, shape it. Uh, in Exodus 34 verse 21, we read, Six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Now imagine if that was translated worship there. Six days you shall worship, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Or six days you shall serve, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Isn't it? That, that is the same word. It has references or links to that. It would not be incorrect to translate that word in that way. In this verse. Uh, another one uh, is in Exodus 5 verse 9. Uh, this is not necessarily a good use, but it's an example where it is. Make the work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Make the work harder for the men. Interesting, make the work, make the work, make the worship harder, make the service harder. Probably where it's been a bit taken askew. Uh, Exodus 8 verse 1, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. So this is when they're about to, they're wanting to leave. They're, they're trapped as slaves. And it says, let my people go that they may work for me. Let my people go that they may serve. And then in Joshua 24, verse 15, But as for me and my household, this is Joshua saying, making a declaration, this is what my family is going to do. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my household, we will worship the Lord. As for me and my household, we will work for the Lord. And this is at the heart of what's going on. So what we're going to do over these next two sessions today and then break for camp and then we come back again in two weeks' time is we're going to explore the idea that the biblical worldview is that work and worship is our 
purpose. That work and worship is our purpose. Now, of course, we need to look at those in the right context because some of you are going, my work ain't my purpose. I know some of you right now are thinking, if my work is my purpose, my life is done. It cannot be that that is my purpose. So obviously there's context to this and there's looking at it, but it should challenge us. If, If it is true that work and worship are intrinsically linked, it kind of gets away from that idea that some Christians have that Sunday is for worship and then I sort of tread through the rest of the week at work. And I get to church and I worship on Sunday and then I go and sort of tolerate work. If work and worship are actually at the heart of our existence as people and are actually at the heart of our Christian faith and expression, then coming to understand what that should look like and how that shapes our life, how that shapes our following of Jesus is very significant. So I want to start by looking at what happened at the fall, because clearly we're not in the Garden of Eden today. It's a bit like, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore. We're not in the perfect nature of the garden. What happened there to really wrestle this idea away? What challenges our purpose from the garden perspective? So in Romans chapter 1, verse 20 to 23, we find this. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, been understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. So in essence, it's saying they didn't give God the worship and service that he was due. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, and that was one of the temptations, one of the reasons they ate the fruit was that they desired wisdom. They desired to be like God. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So, Obviously, what this is referencing is at the time, there are many different faiths and religions. Many of them had idols that were shaped to look like birds or animals or reptiles, created things that were at the heart of people's worship. What happened in the beginning is worship was broken. When Adam and Eve, rather than worshipping and being content to serve and work for God to do their purpose in the garden. Rather than to do that, they desire to be like God. They desire to be at the level of receiving worship rather than being the ones to worship, rather than being the ones to see God in his rightful context. And so obviously what takes place, if you know the story, uh, is that the punishment given to Adam is that he will work the ground. So his purpose is now going to become a challenge. There are going to be thorns and thistles and it's not going to produce the way it used to produce. His very purpose is challenged and broken. Uh, And there's all kinds of other things. The world is turned upside down. And it isn't the way it should be. So what happens then is we come to Jesus uh, and it goes on to share in Romans 6 verse 17 that something changes, that there's a need to redeem 
worship, that if worship is actually at the heart of why were we created, if worship is at the heart of why we're here, then something that was broken needs to be redeemed. And so Romans 6 verse 17 kind of captures some of this, 17 and 18 actually. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Uh, now, the word for slave here isn't our word avoda. It's not our word latreia. It's the word doulos. Uh, and that one, though, is connected. It's a related word. And so Paul is deliberately using, Paul's the person who wrote this letter to the people in Rome. And he's deliberately connecting to this theme of work and worship as our purpose. And he's expressing that when things broke, you became slaves to sin. Your work and your worship became things that were actually disrupted. But thanks to Jesus, thanks to the work that Jesus did on the cross, thanks to his redeeming power of making a way for the curse to be broken, you are actually now able to be, as followers of Jesus, slaves to righteousness. Uh, and this is not a negative context. It's very hard for us to hear the word slave in anything other than a negative context. Like, I, I just don't. I hear the word slave, I think negatively. That's not necessarily what this is meant to be. This is not meant to say you're going from one kind of slavery to another kind and it's going to be equally as bad. What Paul is expressing here is because of what Christ did on the cross, it is possible to start to rediscover the very purpose that we were created for in the beginning. That because of the work of Jesus, we don't need to wait till we get to heaven to spend the rest of eternity in a place of work and worship. But in this life, as you follow Jesus, you can begin to experience the first fruits of the very purpose and meaning that you are meant to have. From the very beginning. That because sin can be dealt with doesn't mean you stop sinning, doesn't mean that you're perfect. But you can actually start to experience the trueness of your purpose and meaning that you were meant to have from the very beginning. Because our purpose is to serve God. To serve God, to worship God, to work for God. And so finding how that actually looks in your day-to-day -day life, how you actually live a rhythm and a lifestyle that actually sees this at the heart of everything that you do is part of what it means to have a Christian worldview. Now, to understand even those mundane things, those annoying things, those frustrating things, they can be redeemed by the way that you perceive and look at your day-to-day -day life. One of the biggest challenges in church and in faith is actually making faith feel like it's relevant the other six days of the week. Like many, if not most of us, we kind of know that going to church, generally speaking, is part of following Jesus. And so we do it when it fits our schedule and we come along and we get there and we do those things. But then we sort of go there and we might have some Bible quiet times. We might have some other aspects. It is so much bigger than that. It's so much fuller. And I don't mean taxing. If you're living in the rhythm of a biblical worldview, it doesn't mean that you're just busy. 
It doesn't mean running more programs. That's not what this is talking to. But it's understanding at a base level just what our purpose and meaning is meant to be. In Romans 12, verse 1 to 2, Paul goes on to explain, this is what it looks like. This is how you sort of put legs on this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, brothers and, this is not just to the men. This is Paul expressing, you all get a chance to do this. Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of what Christ has done for you, in view of the fact that he's come and made a way clear, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That means you are giving your body over to God. That, that everything you do with and using yourself would be given to God for his purposes. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And this word worship here, in case you were a bit surprised, this is our Greek word latreia, which is the equivalent word of our Hebrew word we talked about. This is linked to the garden. When it says, this is your true and proper purpose, so worship, it's because it's recognizing that this is how you live out your original purpose. That from a Christian perspective, Understanding the world through a Christian lens, this is how you get back to your garden existence. By offering your bodies as a living sacrifice. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, because this world, the pattern is broken. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good pleasing and perfect will. What, what he's saying is out of your gratitude, when you really truly understand what Christ has done on the cross, it, it, it really comes to life and helps us out of that attitude of thankfulness to say, God, I am yours. I am yours 24-7. Take this body and use it for your purposes in all times and always. Okay, that doesn't mean you're going to work 24-7, so don't get too stressed there. Because God is a good God. Remember, in the beginning, six days you shall work, and on the seventh you shall rest. Very deliberately built in that there is a rhythm of rest within our purpose. But it's all ours. It's not just when you're on the, on the clock or not on the clock. It's giving yourself as a living sacrifice. So this is a Christian worldview. The Christian worldview is simply this. Our purpose is to live a life of worship to God. And the only thing that makes this relevant, the only reason you would do this, is because of what we just saw in that passage in Romans. Because you come to accept Jesus as your Lord. Because you recognize just what he did on the cross. This is why I talk about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection being the starting point for faith. Genesis is not the starting point. Revelation is not the starting point. Jesus is the starting point. Because it's out of our gratitude for what he's done that we would even recognize that this is what we should look for. 
that our meaning of life, the reason I should be getting up today, the reason I should be getting up tomorrow, the reason I should be doing what I do, the thing that should decide the kind of work and place, and we're going to talk more extensively about work in two weeks' time, so we're not going to go too far into work today. But the reason that should actually define the decisions that we make and the reason we should buy the houses we buy and the reason we should do the things that we do in some way should boil back to our purpose being to live a life of worship to God and recognising that worship is intrinsically linked to the idea of work and service. When you're volunteering for church, that's not the kind of work that this is talking about. Now, please do. We need volunteers, so thank you very much. But that's not actually what this is talking to. This is talking to even your vocation, even your what you do to earn a living is intrinsically linked to how you worship God. And your mindset around that is intrinsically linked to how you live a life of worship to God. And there are some people that have had to do some pretty atrocious jobs in their life. They've been in places or they've found themselves in conditions where it's just like, this is just awful. But they've had clarity of purpose and placement. doesn't make it easy. doesn't mean that they're like, yes, this is great. I love this terrible job. But because they have an understanding of how it connects them to their purpose, of living a life of worship for God. It can really help change things. As I said, we are going to go, in two weeks' time, come back for the deep dive into what this looks like from work perspective. Uh, the whole message is going to look at how does this shape our work? Because for most of us, we spend more time at work than we do doing church stuff, and that's actually how it's meant to be. So we're not looking for you to do 40 hours or more of church stuff. Actually helping you live out your work life in light of this is so much more important. And this might be because you're doing paid work. This might be because you're doing volunteer work. This might be because you're actually raising a family, which is actually part of work and part of the biblical understanding of what it means to live a life of worship. But what I want to end with today is actually just taking a little bit of a focus on the worship side of it. What are the different ways that we can actually live out worship? What sort of areas might this approach in our lives? Right, so firstly, I won't speak to it again, but the best one that outlines what it means to live a life of worship and some of the words that are actually connected to that are the idea of obedience, of service, of using our gifts. Is the passage we read from Romans. That actually, what does it mean to decide to follow Jesus? Why do you have to be really sure that you're sure about Jesus? Well, the reason you need to be really sure is it isn't just the decision that you make on a day and then you wait for Jesus to return to then spend eternity with him. Is that when you decide to follow Jesus, you give the rest of this life over to him. Every decision that you make is through the lens of being a 24-7 follower of Jesus, that you give your body as a living sacrifice and that that will be the lens that everything is worked through. 
And that can seem really daunting because we often have a different view of exactly how that plays out. But we'll talk to that in particular and work in a couple of weeks. Another one is the idea of collective worship. Uh, in Colossians 3 verse 6 then it says this, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. For whatever reason, and if you don't like singing, you can ask God when you meet, you know, when he actually, when Jesus returns and you're having a face-to-face conversation, you can ask him why you're singing a thing. Now, I like singing. Uh, people that may not like my singing, but I like singing. Uh, so I have no problem with this, but I recognize for some Christians it's a challenge. But singing has been a part of every culture that has served Yahweh, every culture that has worshipped Yahweh has had a singing culture. We don't sing just because we like it. We sing because it's music to God's ears. And I'm really glad about that because it may not be music to everyone else's. But to God's ears it is. And one of the ways that we express this life of worship is it's not about our desires, but about recognizing what God desires. That as we sing and as we praise and as we bring our voices up to God, we are putting our own selves in the back seat for a moment and saying, God, I may not totally know why you want to hear my voice right now, but you do because your word makes that clear. So I am going to praise out of the gratitude from my heart, out of recognizing just what you've done for me. I will sing. Might be the only place that you sing, but that's okay. Or you might be like some who can't stop singing. That's also good. There's practical worship, and the Bible teaches a lot around actually practically doing acts, offering, so giving financially is an act of worship. Because it's saying to God, I recognize that this is actually not mine. Okay, I don't give 100% because I like to eat and there are things and bills to pay. But I give a portion as an offering to God. I have no control over it. I have no say over it. I just give it to him. And that doesn't, that's not just what you give to church. That's a part of that. But it's recognizing and saying, God, you are the God of my finances. And Hebrews 13, 15 to 16, it says this. Uh, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good, to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Looking out for your neighbor when they need a cup of milk or a a cup of sugar or the old-fashioned way of making sure that your, your neighbors actually have what they need. Rediscovering some of that is actually a really good thing. Knowing your neighbors enough that you can do those things. It's kind of a fun thing that we're doing in, in Ravenswood at the moment. Uh, I've got a good veggie garden. You know, some people got, they grow, have chooks and things and there are other places. And we've been like rotating and giving different stock and things. And it's actually been really fun to rediscover that. It doesn't happen everywhere and who knows if it'll happen forever, but it's happening for now. That is actually living out, I think, Part of a life of worship to God. And then finally, there's personal worship. Again, I'm, I'm trying to summarize into like one passage. There's multiple passages that speak to this. Actually getting baptized is an act of worship. 
taking that step to say, Jesus, I'm yours. It's a public expression of something that's already happened inside of you. Prayer and being a person of prayer is an act of worship. Spiritual disciplines and learning what it means to live a disciplined life is an act of worship. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 7 to 8, it says, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Here's the reality. And again, Paul alluded to this before when he said, do not conform to the pattern of this world. This world will not draw you to godliness. This world will not make it easy for you to worship him. This world, if you follow the pattern of this world, it will not make you a better follower of Jesus. It will do the opposite. It actually takes an intentional decision to train yourself, to put yourself in environments where you're growing and coming to understand what the Bible is teaching, to recognize that you will have desires within you that are, that are pulling and tearing at you. And some of them may be of God, but some of them aren't. And recognizing those and learning over time to live and to choose to live a godly life. And that is all connected to our purpose. To live a life of work and worship for God. So come back next week for camp, because I think most people here are actually coming on camp, which is really exciting. And then come back in two weeks' time for part two. Uh, We're going to do a deep dive into what does this mean for work? And how on earth can we possibly tie some of the jobs and things that we're doing into our very purpose. That's what we're going to look at in two weeks' time. Let's just pray. Uh, Father, we thank you that you created us. We thank you that you gave us purpose. You gave us meaning. I pray that you would help us to discover what that looks like in our life. I pray in our places of work, and I pray in our environments of worship, that you would just help us to give our lives to give our bodies, to give our whole selves as a living sacrifice. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.